Sermon Audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. I read about an experiment conducted some years ago. Chuck Swindoll used this as an illustration. An experiment uh, conducted by university where there were 10 students that were placed in a room. These students were uh, from grade school to high school. And uh, three lines were drawn um, of different lengths. And the students then were asked to identify which of the lines was the longest line. But of those 10 in the room, nine of them had already been instructed to point at the one that was the second longest, not the longest one. So one of the students in the room was what's called the stooge, right? To see how that student would respond uh, when asked which line is longest. And as the instructor would point at uh, each of the lines, um, inevitably, uh, when, the, when, the, when the student raised his hand or her hand to, to identify the line that was the longest and looked around the room to see that the nine others weren't raising their hand, their arm would shoot down straight away. In about 75% of the cases, that uh, they were too timid to be the only one identifying the correct answer, the longest line. And um, these same students also were asked, uh, how many would you, of you would want to be the president? And apparently then, more people would rather be president than be right. <laughs> That's how uh, timid we tend to be. Now the question is, of course, for you as adults or as older people, would you be bold enough to keep your hand raised in identifying the line that was the longest, even if no one else was raising their hand? or to not raise your hand when nine others are raising their hand. I did something that was pretty bold just this week as I was heading back on Friday. I was standing on the platform at one of the train stations. I don't know why I decided to do it on this particular day. Normally I'd be too timid, but maybe I'd just been working on the sermon. And someone was smoking on the platform, crowded platform. And you know that here in Denmark, you're not allowed to smoke on the platform. It's a smoke-free train at a smoke-free platform, and someone was smoking. And I had the audacity to ask the person to please stop smoking, and I pointed at what I thought was the sign that said no smoking, only to discover that was a sign for something completely else. <laughs> and, uh, and then I pointed at the board, which had the, the, the time schedule and all that, so the sign wasn't there either. And uh, so I'm looking around for, well, where does it say that you're not supposed to smoke on the platform? And someone kind enough, holding a little dog, uh, pointed at the garbage can that yes, it says no smoking in the platform is not. So, those of you who are bold enough to ask people not to smoke on the platform, there is a sign that says so. But I was wondering, why would I be so bold in that moment? Maybe it's just because I decided I didn't want to be timid. How many of you would be timid when it comes to your testimony of who Jesus Christ is? If you were the only one in the room to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And faith in Jesus Christ means your sins can be forgiven and you can live eternally. Would you be bold enough, if you were the only person in the room who was willing to raise their hand and say, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Or do you sometimes feel like, well, if there's going to be opposition, maybe I shouldn't be as bold? Why is it that we are willing to speak of Christ and sing of him being our redemption, of him, his blood washing us of our sins, when we're in a group as, as large as this group, when the majority of us here believe that. 
Um, why are we timid when it comes to being the only one to speak of who Jesus Christ is? It was Adrian Rogers who tell, told about a man who bragged that he had cut off the tail of a man-eating lion with his pocket knife. Such courage this man showed. But when he was asked, why didn't you cut off his head? He said, well, someone had already done that. <laughs> Today we're going to look at what the believers of the early church did when they faced opposition, and we'll hear their testimony. What were they willing to stand for, and what happened next? Some of you remember from last week, we were in Acts chapter 3, so we're going to quickly review a little bit about that story first. But let me draw your attention, if you will, as we, keep, as we continue our study on the early church, to look at Peter and John as they stood before those who opposed their testimony that Jesus is the Christ and that he had been raised from the dead. Our reading today starts in chapter 4, but let me give you a quick rundown of what we looked at last week for those of you who weren't here last week. How many, would you raise your, no, never mind. I won't ask you to raise your hand. <laughs> How many of you weren't here last week? No, never mind. Uh, but Acts chapter 3, we see that Peter and John had gone up to the temple to pray, and they had been approached by a beggar who had been crippled from birth. This man could not walk all of his years, and as we see later, that he was at least 40 years old. And Peter did not have silver or gold to give him, but instead, he told the man to walk in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And it says in verse 8 of chapter 3 that leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. In verse 10, all who saw the beggar recognized him as a layman, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And Peter then began to preach. All the people in the temple courts came to Solomon's colonnade. They were where Peter and John and this beggar were. And Peter took that opportunity to preach the gospel to the Jews who had gathered around. And just a couple of highlights of his sermon in verse 15, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Bold proclamation that this was Jesus' power. The same Jesus that you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, you denied the holy and righteous one, he says. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. It is his name. And by faith in his name, Peter goes on to say in verse 16, that has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, Peter goes on to say, as did your rulers. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And what happened then was that many who heard that message believed in this Jesus that they were proclaiming, and it says that the number of believers rose to 5,000. But not everyone believed, because there were also the priests, captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection. They seized Peter and John, jailed them because they were greatly disturbed that they were, quote, teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So a summary of last week was that the apostles had done three things. They had displayed the power of Jesus working in them. They had proclaimed the name of Jesus as they called people to repentance. And thirdly, they had testified to the resurrection of Jesus. The question we have to ask ourselves, if we are the church and they are the early church, does our church look anything like the early church? Do we also display the power of Jesus in us and proclaim his name and call people to repentance? 
Do we testify to the resurrection of Jesus? Yes, certainly we do here in church, but do we do so out there when we face those who don't believe that he was raised from the dead? Because all of that happened toward the end of the day. So the apostles were held in custody overnight. And we pick up the story in verse 5 of chapter 4 of what happens this next day after the religious leaders could then gather for a trial. Verse 5 of chapter 4 in Acts, on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, quote, by what power or by what name did you do this? Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pause there for a second, for a moment, or actually for many moments. <laughs> the council of leaders, that is the Sanhedrin, they met to bring Peter and John before them for questioning. And if you notice the names of Annas and Caiaphas, these are the same high priestly leaders that had put Jesus on trial. Annas was the high priest emeritus. It was his son-in-law Caiaphas that was the reigning high priest at the time Jesus was tried. Luke describes the time of the ministry of Jesus as during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So in other words, although Caiaphas was officially the high priest, and the president of the Sanhedrin, Annas was still an influential force. And both of them present, along with so many others, is evidence that this was a matter of great importance. And their question was rather simple. By what power or by what name did you do this? In other words, who has given you the authority and the ability to heal? And just as Peter had done before, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and then took the opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the fourth speech we've seen in Acts so far, all from Peter. You might recall that uh, the first time he spoke, he, it was to appoint the 12th apostle to replace Judas. The second time was upon the filling of the Holy Spirit, and he explained to everyone there what was going on, and uh, that he also called people to receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the third time was the one I just alluded to earlier in the sermon that we looked at last Sunday. But by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter now makes his defense, which was exactly as the Lord Jesus Christ had told him would happen. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus says to all of his disciples, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. This was exactly what was happening. Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, exactly what was happening. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness, he said. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So Paul, and, excuse me, Peter 
inspired then by the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had predicted he would be, began with what was essentially an attack on the leaders. He began his trial with putting them on the defensive. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, he started. That is, do we really have to defend ourselves for having done something to help someone else? Are you really going to condemn this good deed that we have done? And notice it's exactly what Jesus went through. Time and again, there was resistance against him for healing people. When he did so on the Sabbath, there was the man with the shriveled hand. In Luke chapter 6, there was the woman who was bent over for more than 18 years that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Or the man with dropsy in Luke chapter 14. These people looked past the fact that this was a person who'd been suffering for many years, for a long time, who had now been made whole. They looked past the fact that this was a person only to find fault and condemn the one who had done the healing. It was audacious that they would have the nerve to put people on trial by doing something that was clearly good, something clearly beneficial and wonderful. But notice what would happen to Jesus was also now happening to his followers, just as he said it would. And what did Peter do next? He, of course, gave credit to Jesus for healing the man. Let it be known, he said, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. That's a simple answer to that simple question. What power gives you that name? Jesus of Nazareth, he said. And he identifies their questioning and their resistance with the prophetic words of Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 speaks of a stone that was being rejected by the builders that had become a cornerstone. You take a look at Psalm 118. You don't have to go there today. But it is a song all about salvation. How the Lord delivers those who trust in him. It's a song that speaks of the Lord saving the one who calls upon him, who takes refuge in him. And it says, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And that Psalm 118 prophetically announced the deliverance from the Lord that it would come from something or someone that would be rejected by all the others. And so Peter goes on to say, not only did this man get healed by Jesus, but all salvation comes only from Jesus. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, perhaps you wouldn't have noticed this if you've never studied this passage before. But the word in the original language for healed has the same root as the word in the original language for salvation. The same word for being saved, the same root whose noun form is salvation, whose verb form is to save. And the word encompasses all concepts of bringing to safety or restoring or having restoration, being made well or being made whole, preserving, deliverance. That's this word. That since this man was healed or made well by Jesus, all salvation also comes from the same Jesus. He doesn't only make us physically whole. He is our Savior. He is the one and only deliverer from God who can save us also not only from our guilt and our sin, but to restore us from our brokenness to our wholeness. Perhaps you don't know this either, but Jesus is the Greek equivalent of Yeshua. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
And in Psalm 118, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my Yeshua, my salvation. So what we see here is the Holy Spirit filling the disciples of Jesus Christ so that they can bear witness or testify of Jesus being Yeshua, the Savior. Remember Jesus' last words to his disciples? Along with his great commission, where he says to his disciples, make disciples of all nations. He also said at the very beginning of the book of Acts, you will be my witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. And everyone then who is a follower of Jesus Christ, who has experienced his salvation because they've confessed their sins, they've called upon him to save him, and they can, which only he can do, we have become his witnesses. We tend to think of discipleship and evangelism as two separate things, right? And sometimes it could be helpful that we deal with the subject or activities or habits that we do to deepen our relationship with God and to follow Christ more faithfully, the discipleship aspect. And then sometimes we have activities where we focus on sharing our faith, going and telling others, the evangelism side of it. So sometimes it's helpful to think of the two things as different, but it's important for us to remember that anything regarding the following of Jesus Christ, being a disciple of His, is also all about serving others. And it is also all about sharing our faith. So as we grow deeper in our relationship with Christ, as we become more and more like Him, then we are also more and more like Him in our ministry. We serve others, and we share the good news with others. Evangelism is really part of being a disciple. You will be my witnesses. Not necessarily you will go witnessing, although you will have occasions to witness, but you will be my witnesses. And the Holy Spirit's power is given to us mainly so that we can bear witness of Jesus Christ, to give us the boldness to say that He is the only one who can save. Now, let me ask you this. If Jesus said in the earlier words in Luke, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth of wisdom, does that then mean we should not need any instruction or any seminars on evangelism or on how to share your faith? Anyone want to raise their hand and answer? <laughs> Let's first of all remember that Jesus was instructing his disciples in that context of opposition persecution, standing trial, even a trial that could lead to death, that may cause us as his disciples to waver or to hesitate. Take courage in those situations, Jesus says to his disciples. The Holy Spirit in you will inspire you. And the reality is that most of us, we probably won't face that kind of opposition or persecution in our lifetime. Most likely, my guess is, we might suffer at most ridicule, maybe mockery, but not really standing on trial for who do you really believe, and maybe the time will come. But secondly, also, if we were to follow that line of argument that any instruction or teaching or seminars on evangelism is unnecessary, then we'd also have to conclude that any kind of teaching or instruction on, about, on how to live the Christian life would also be unnecessary. Because after all, it's the Holy Spirit, right, that gives us insight. Why would we need instruction? It's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to obey Christ's teaching. Why do we need some seminar about obedience in a particular area? And 
It is, after all, also the Holy Spirit that does the conforming into Christ's likeness, right? So we don't have to have church and hear anyone preach because the Holy Spirit does that. Well, I wouldn't buy that argument either. Jesus did say that it is the Holy Spirit who will convict the world concerning sin. Yes, he will guide you into all truth. And we only bear fruit if the Holy Spirit is in us. But if we want to be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful and patient and kind and faithful, yes, we do have to rely on the Holy Spirit so that he can bear his fruit in us. But I don't think that that means we don't need any instruction or teaching or seminars on deepening our fellowship as a believer, on raising our children or prayer, serving as we're gifted, overcoming addictions, defending our faith, just because we can say, well, it just takes the Holy Spirit. I believe also that since the followers of Jesus Christ have been told by Jesus that he's given the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, I believe that instruction and teaching and seminars is an important and vital part of us becoming more and more like Christ so that we can serve others and share the gospel with others. Jesus does not want his church to remain immature and susceptible to the cunning and craftiness of deceitful schemes, so he gives the church the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. Because after all, all of us need that urging. We need that encouragement and teaching so that we can walk with Christ in a manner that is worthy of him. Or else, why would Paul and the other apostles even have to write to the churches to teach, to reprove, to correct, and train in righteousness? It's the same Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to speak in that moment of persecution as the same Peter who says and writes, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And so also, I believe it's important that we receive biblical instructions in every area of our lives so that we understand how to apply it faithfully in every area, including the part of our walk that involves being a witness. So, having said that, be sure to sign up for our evangelism seminar. All right? To equip you, to encourage you to make gospel conversations part of your daily conversation whether it's with Christians that you're fellowshipping with or with non-Christians, unbelievers yet to believe. Since Jesus wants us to be witnesses, we ought to expect and embrace these opportunities for the Holy Spirit to testify of Jesus Christ to those around us. So let's read on then in verse 13. Now that we've taken just a few moments on that part. <laughs> now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them 
not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign was of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So their boldness was truly extraordinary. So extraordinary that they were amazed and struck. Because these were ordinary men. They were uneducated. In other words, they had not been to formal school and some rabbinical school. Sure, they called Jesus rabbi. Some others may have called Jesus rabbi. But, but these people were not ready to call Jesus a rabbi. This is the same Peter who had the same boldness as we saw earlier speaking to the people. And the same Peter who was too timid to admit that he knew Jesus that night that Jesus was betrayed. But when they had seen the risen Lord, it changed everything. So the council tried to dismiss Peter and John first as they conferred. They tried to silence their testimony just as they had tried to silence Jesus. And they thought that a stern warning from the Sanhedrin, the authority, would be enough. They decided to let them go. But once again, Peter and John puts them on the defensive. He says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. What's he really saying? He's saying, we can't obey both of you. What you're saying is not what God is saying to us. This is a perfect example of the right way to do civil disobedience. That you submit to your authority and give honor to the rulers. Unless, of course, what they're asking you to do is, contra is contradictory to the highest authority that you also must submit to, that of God. And it was obvious, or they were making it obvious, that what you're asking us to do is not what God is asking us to do. Now you be the judge. Which one should we do? And so when the believers then, oh, so then they, they, they leave the place, and let's continue reading then, in verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had to say to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It's exciting here that the believers, when they gather together with all the others and report what has happened to them, that they turn to the Lord in this moment. They acknowledge, first of all, his sovereignty and his divine purpose and plan in the opposition they were facing. It was happening just as David had prophesied in Psalm chapter 2, or in Psalm, in Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? And they identify exactly the, Herod, the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, the kings of the earth, 
and the rulers, Herod, Pontius Pilate. It's exactly as the psalm had said. And in all of Peter's sermons so far, he's emphasized the death of Jesus as a fulfillment of God's divine plan. He was not caught off guard when Jesus, his anointed one, was crucified. So they pray for boldness in this moment. That's amazing that they turn to God in prayer and they didn't ask God to retaliate. No request for condemning the rulers. They didn't ask God for relief. No request for changing or removing the opposition. What did they ask for? They asked for boldness to speak the testimony and they asked for God to confirm his word through his great acts. Someone has once said, I don't know who to quote, but it said, oh, do not pray for easy lives. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. And as we come before the Lord, praising him for his sovereign power, even when we face oppositions, we ought to be praying that he does great things through us as we are becoming more and more bold to speak of Jesus Christ. Many of the prophecies that have yet to be filled are all about Christians needing to suffer sometime in the future. So we shouldn't be surprised when we face opposition. Remember instead to come to God in prayer and praise and ask for boldness. We are his witnesses, but we are not all equally bold. So I think all of us would do well to ask God for boldness because there are people around us, followers of other religions, who won't testify as we do. Sure, they may speak of Jesus Christ, but they'll say things, yes, maybe he really did exist. He was a historical figure. He was a prophet. But he wasn't the son of God, they'll say. Or they'll acknowledge that he certainly had some good teaching, but they won't acknowledge his claim that he was God in the flesh, that he had the authority of God, and he displayed the fullness of God's character. Other people may acknowledge the teachings of Jesus Christ, containing some wisdom and some truth, not that they are absolutely true. Or they'll acknowledge that Jesus made some valid statements, but they'll outright deny his claim that he was God the Son. If you're the only person in the room willing to admit that Jesus is God the Son, who was with the Father before the beginning of time, will you still keep your hand raised? Because we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of mankind, that no other name has been given under heaven by which we must be saved. Only Jesus can save. And Jesus said to us, his disciples, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Friends, God has not selected a different means to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known among the nations except through you and through me. In other words, there is no plan B. You are plan A. And Jesus is the only way to the Father. We have to proclaim it. Now, some my protest, isn't your faith rather exclusive? In other words, you're excluding all those other faiths, all those other deities as possible ways to heaven. They might say, you're being exclusive by saying Jesus is the only way. But isn't it they that should be more open because they're so closed to the possibility that there could be only one way to the Father? That perhaps the claim of Jesus 
is true, they may be open to more things than we are. They may be a little bit more inclusive, but they are certainly being exclusive when they're excluding the claim of Jesus who claimed to be the way and the truth and the life. So who's being exclusive now? Now, how are we then supposed to fulfill God's purposes for us as witnesses if we're too timid about our testimony? Friends, let us not allow any opposition to our testimony to discourage our faith. Let us continually pray for boldness as the apostles and the early church did. And look what happened next. Just briefly in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. See how this passage really is all about boldness of the early church. Hence the title of the sermon, The Boldness of the Early Church. We saw one man healed and 2,000 being added to the church. Here God was confirming his presence by shaking the place they were gathered and filling them all with his spirit for the boldness to speak. In the same way, I believe we should expect God to perform his mighty acts in us according to his will. Because people are still turning to Christ in repentance as they confess their sins and the Spirit brings conviction. People are still experiencing the freedom from a life of addiction and for spiritual bondage. People are still today being transformed as old habits and character qualities are being renewed by the mind of Christ as they read His Word. And people are still experiencing healings from sicknesses and diseases that the doctors can't explain. Let us remember that God of course, performs his mighty acts according to his will, not ours. So sometimes when we pray for mighty acts, they don't happen as we sometimes expect or hope for. Because sometimes our prayers aren't according to his will. But see, prayer, as Dr. Robert Smith in the men's conference was saying, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness to discover what is it that God wants to do and laying a hold of that. And sometimes what we think might cause people to leave the church, and run away from God is actually what God uses to bring people closer to Him. So as we might face opposition, it won't be as severe or drastic as perhaps the early church. As we do, we should see it as an opportunity for God to demonstrate His presence here on earth. So what do you think could be possible if we surrendered ourselves and asked God to give us the boldness and to use His hand to work wonders in the people around us. Do you think that we could perhaps, or God could perhaps, change the hearts of the influential people around us? I think he can. What about those around us who are staunchly religious, have another faith, and don't believe in Jesus' deity? I think that God can use our testimony. Or what if people around us began to be healed from their sicknesses? Or what if those who were atheists and evolutionists around us suddenly gave the gospel of Jesus Christ a chance? We ought to expect these opportunities to testify of Jesus. And if we do face opposition, let it lead us to prayer for boldness. And let's let God use that, op that opposition as an opportunity for him to demonstrate his power through our testimony. Why? This is critical. It's because the lost today still need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be bold to share our testimony of him, especially if we're facing opposition. There was a preacher in the fourth century named Chrysostom. I did a project on him when I was studying 
in seminary, which was back when the earth was still cooling. But Chrysostom was arrested by the Roman emperor. And the emperor tried to make this Greek Christian recant. But he was unsuccessful. The emperor discussed with his advisors, what do you think I could do to this prisoner? Shall I put him in the dungeon? The emperor asked his advisors. No, one of his counselors replied, for he will be glad to go. He longs for the quietness wherein he can delight in the mercies of his God. Then he shall be executed, said the emperor. No, was the answer, for he will also be glad to die. He declares that in the event of death, he will be in the presence of his Lord. What shall we do then? The ruler asked. There's only one thing that will give Chrysostom pain, the counselor said. To cause Chrysostom to suffer, make him sin. He's afraid of nothing except sin, they said. Can I quote John Wesley? I know this is a Baptist setting, but may I quote John Wesley? Give me a hundred men who fear nothing but sin, he said, and desire nothing but God, and I will shake the world. I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen, and such alone will overthrow the kingdom of Satan and build up the kingdom of God on earth. Let us pray. Oh, Father, even now as we come before you, bowed down, in complete surrender of your Holy Spirit to empower us, to make us more like Jesus Christ, to give us the mind of Christ, to renew us, Lord. We submit ourselves as your church, witnesses of Jesus Christ, commissioned to make disciples of all nations. And Lord, we pray that you would do in us what you want your church to become, a light to the nations that Jesus Christ saves. Father, we pray that we would see great things happen in our lifetime. May great works and signs and wonders be done as we proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to those around us. And Lord, if we ever face opposition or ridicule or mockery, remind us to continue to pray, to ask for boldness, and to ask for you to do a great work in people's hearts. Lord, we surrender ourselves to you today that you might have your way in us. And we ask, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may your kingdom come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.